I'll be wrapping up today. Um, the knowledge of God's pleasure, God's pleasure. So we're wrapping that up, and I wish we could, wish we can go on, and but hope that just give you enough, to, just enough to kind of consider. My, my hope and desire is that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and not to be content with just the same old Bible knowledge that you've had since you were a child. God wants us to grow to understand better and more clearer and more understanding the tremendous treasure that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, we have a tremendous treasure. We have mega destiny upon the people of God. The people of God are a great people. Not because they're great in themselves, because God has chosen us, right? So do you remember, do you remember that um, wonderful thing in the book of N Numbers when Balaam was hired by Balak to curse the people of God. And Balak, you know, Balak didn't know what to do with the people of God, so he wanted to say, so he got a prophet, Balaam, and said, can you do, please do me a favor, can you just curse these people? These people just are just annoying, and they just, they're, 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 you know, so let's, let's, just, let's just end this once and all. <laughs> let's put a, um, let's do some magic. And let's get this. Let's get rid of this stuff. <laughs> and Balaam, you know, Balaam is a fishy character. You know, <laughs> we don't know where he is, but you know, but Balaam did his best. He's, he he was trying to prophesy curses, and he couldn't he couldn't do it. And um, in fact, the story ends that Balaam prophesied the destruction of Balak. <laughs> what a twist, you know. He says, and, and by the way, King, you know, they're going to rise up against you and destroy you. You know, so, you know, God's people are great people. Amen. And, and I want to I want you to encourage you um, to be a Christian is an awesome thing. I know that's a bad word nowadays. And you're a Christian and sh for good reasons, for good reasons, right? Because there's so much hypocrisy. But to be the people of the Lord, um, that's incredible. So let's read Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, from the day that we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So Paul is praying, not ceased to asking, begging, pleading God that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Paul sees something. He, he ain't praying every day out of a, a book because the, the um, that was a tradition. <laughs> You know, he is praying, pleading with God that the people would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we want to understand what is it that Paul saw that made him pray every day, made him pray without ceasing. That we, you and I, be filled, not just have, you know, working knowledge, you know, <laughs> right? We're content with working now, just a little dabble. How many people are, what's that old saying? Um, jack of all trades, but what? The master of none. <laughs> there are a bunch of Christians like that, you know. Jack of all trades, they know a little, John 3, 16, they know a little bit of this and then a little bit of that, you know, but they don't go, they haven't mastered anything. And Paul says, I want you to master. I want to be filled 
I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his will. And so let's pray. Father, as we conclude this, this series that you've just blessed my heart so much and my mind and my has been changed, my heart has been changed, my perspective, my outlook, my future has just been just more clear. I pray that you would do the same to all of us and that we would take seriously what it means to be the people of God. You have given us such a great inheritance. And so I pray that today you would fill us with the knowledge of his will. Fill us with that, Lord, today in all spiritual wisdom and understanding that we would be a people that would delight and rejoice in God. And so, Lord, I just commit this time into you. Help me to move it along. Help us to really um, conclude it in a way that will bring glory and honor to your name, we pray. Amen. And so we began to ask, that we may be filled with the knowledge of us, so we asked the question, what is the will of God? What is God's will? And I hope that by now, if you've been coming in for a little while, you can start to see um, a, a little more clear what, what's, in, what's in store, the will of God. God's will refers to this powerful desire in God for something that brings him great pleasure. We, we've told you, uh, I hope that that has shifted your view of God. God is a God of great pleasure. And if you are going to walk with Jesus, you're going to have to know that. That, that that's in his core of being. God of pleasure. God of delight. Right? He doesn't follow rules. He is the rule. Amen? And so I remember, you know, that has changed my life. Changed my life to know that God is a God of great pleasure and delight. And that God's will refers to that pleasure. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, that's what he does. So the Lord does what he pleases him, what he takes delight in. That's what God's act. All his works are an aspect of his pleasure, an expression of his pleasure. Even the death of his son, which Isaiah says, it pleased God to crush him. So, so, we could, so we could see that God's pleasure, God's will is driving everything in life. Amen? And so then we, we, we began to look at, one asked that question, and I'm not, I don't want to repeat too much of um, what is the particular delight of God. What is it that God has pleasure in? And so I left you hanging for a few weeks, you know, but today we'll hopefully... Give you a little bit of taste, to, to, little to whet your appetite. What is it that God takes pleasure in? What is the knowledge of His pleasure? What is it that Paul wants us to know about His pleasure? And so, in in trying to answer that question, I, the Lord directed me to Psalms. The last five Psalms, the last six Psalms of Psalm one forty five, one forty six, one forty seven, one forty eight, one forty nine, Psalm one fifty, and we said clearly that those Psalms are unique in their character. Because after Psalm 144, beginning with Psalm 145, what, what is absent from Psalm 145 to Psalm 150? What is absent? What was that? Sorrow. No more sorrow. 
No more suffering. The last scripture that speaks about suffering or deliverance is in Psalm 144. But beginning with Psalm 145, all through Psalm 150, no more suffering. No more prayers for deliverance. No more God rescue me. God help me against my enemy. All of that is gone. No more. That, and so Psalm 145 through 150, they serve as a portrait of the last state when all has been, God has already completed everything. And, and it's progressive. It's progressive from Psalm 145 to Psalm 146, from Psalm 147, Psalm 148, Psalm 149. And then you climax at Psalm 150. And we, and we spent a couple of weeks in Psalm 150 where there's this glorious climax, all of creation. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, right? So we began to ask the question, what is the significance of Psalm 150? And then we said clearly that Psalm 150, first of all, Psalm 150 is a portrait of ultimate final reality in Christ. That's where we're all going, describing ultimate eschatological reality, the last state. Psalm 150 is reserved, so you can study it, and, and, and it, it's just glorious when you take each each verse, each sentence, and you begin to say, oh, God, God, you're describing something here that is so wonderful, so beautiful. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipes. Praise him with sounding cymbal. Praise him with loud clashing cymbal. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So that's the final reality. And Psalm 150 is going to answer seven questions about the final reality. First of all, it's, gonna, it's going to answer the question, what is the ultimate Final reality, activity that's going to describe that final reality, it's praise. It's praise. Second of all, what is the ultimate object of that praise? Yahweh, the Lord. Praise the Lord. And we said the last couple of weeks that the name, the name Yahweh is going to serve in three ways. It serves three ways. One, the, why Yahweh? Why not Adonai? Why not, why not praise El Shaddai? What's wrong with that? Why praise Yahweh? Well, because Yahweh is going to make a distinction from all the other gods. S secondly, Yahweh is going to stress the absolute faithfulness of God to keep his covenant. So Psalm 150 is a celebration that God is faithful, right? He's faithful. He, he, he completed, he accomplished all that he promised he would do. Amen? God's going to be faithful to us. And then thirdly, Yahweh is going to stress the vengeance of God against his enemies, right? There are no more enemies. No, no more devils, no more demons, no more harassment, no more nothing. Thirdly, where is this ultimate praise is going to take place? Where, where did, Psalm 150 verse 1, praise God in his sanctuary. So the sanctuary is where God is going to really, um, is, is going to, absorb all that God has intended for creation, it will be in the sanctuary. Fourthly, the ultimate reason, what's the reason why 
there's all this praise. Verse 2, praise him for his mighty, mighty deeds. Praise him for his mighty deeds. There's going to be a praise that is going to be grounded in, uh, right, a reason because God has done great things. And you're gonna, you and I are going to be witnesses in the fullness of, of all that God has done, yeah, we have, an, we, have a de- we have a good idea of what God has done. Christ died on the cross, right? But on that day, we're going to see it all perfectly. And we're going to be amazed at what God has done, right? Uh, we're going to, according to, how are we going to praise God? According to what standard? Uh, the fifth question. We are going to praise God according to his excellent greatness. We're not going to offer God a praise that is kind of eh. On that day, we're going per- to perfectly praise God. Amen? Sixthly, how are we going to pra- In what manner are we going to praise God that day? We're going to praise him with instruments, all kinds of instruments. Right? With harp. We're going we're gonna, to, with trumpet. With lute and harp and tambourine and dance and strings and pipe and sounding cymbal, loud clashing cymbals. It's gonna be it's gonna be glorious. And then finally, who are those who are gonna be who's gonna be who are invited into that praise? Let everyone, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. So today we're done with Psalm 150. Psalm 150 is the climax. Today. I want to take a look at Psalm 149. We want to consider the significance of Psalm 149. Right? And um, what is the significance of Psalm 149? Psalm 150 is a great, it's a great, it's a great climax. What I'm interested now is like what came before the great climax? What came before? Psalm 149, right? Right, so, right? Psalm 150 is this great climax. But what led to that climax? What, what are factors, what are the conditions that made that climax possible? Does that make sense? Is that a fair question? You guys follow me? So you got this great climax in Psalm 150, Psalm 149 is going to answer the question, what came before this great climax? Psalm 149 is going to serve as a precondition. You cannot appreciate Psalm 150 unless you understand Psalm 149. God doesn't just bring us to that final state. He does things organically. He does things little by little. He brings us to here, and then he gives you some more, and there's a constant expansion. Psalm 149 is going to be very helpful because it's going to be the precondition. What do we mean by a precondition? A precondition is a condition that has to be fulfilled before something else takes place. And the condition of Psalm 150 is Psalm 149. Psalm 149 is going to prepare us for Psalm 150. If there's no Psalm 149, there is no Psalm 150. Does that make sense? 
you got to have, right? It's like a football team. So-and-so scored a touchdown. But he, if he, he don't score a touchdown, if Tom Brady doesn't throw the ball, Tom has to throw the ball, in order, and that's the, Tom Brady has to throw the ball, and then he can score a touchdown. There are conditions that, are, that govern the, the result, the outcome. And so Psalm 149 is going to be that condition so that you can fully appreciate what's happening in Psalm 150. Let's understand Psalm 149. What is it in Psalm 149 that God says after Psalm 149, okay, let the celebration begin. Right? Do you get that? Psalm 150 is, is basically a celebration. Let everything, praise the Lord, every, right? What happened in Psalm 149 where God says, it is finished. You can go ahead and start. Let's look at Psalm 149. First of all, Psalm 149 does in, seems to introduce a new situation. He says, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song. Now, this is going to be the final time in the book of Psalms that a new song is introduced. It's the final. I believe this new song is the song of 150. It's a psalm. There's a new song. Praise, sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. It seems to suggest a new state of affairs, a new change. Something has happened, right? We see that in history. We see that in Exodus 15. In Exodus 15, um, God destroys Egypt. God destroys the Fa Pharaoh and his army. Um, the destruction of, of, of Pharaoh and his army is a totally new, new state of affairs for Israel. It's a totally new condition. Like they've lived under the burden and the slavery and the oppression of Pharaoh for 430 years. But then it came a moment when it's over. It's like they saw, they saw the Egyptians on the, in the water dead. It was over. That introduces a new chapter. It's not the same old chapter. Do you understand that? It's not the same. It's a new chapter. So, and so we, that, that change is captured like this. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider is thrown into the sea. That melody has been captured in history. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but that is a song. I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider is thrown into the sea. So, so the idea, the idea that, that a song introduces a new state of affairs. Now, let me ask you something. How many of you, consider your history with Jesus Christ, how many of you have a song that the Holy Spirit gives you that marks a new chapter in your life. <laughs> That's very common in the life of believers. Very common. That you're going through something, going through something, going through, and then there's a song that God gives you, and that song seems to enter into a new state of faith. So, for example, I hear Psalm 23. The song by Shane and Shane. Does anyone know what that reminds me of? COVID. 
right? As soon as I hear that song, my, my tears flow. Because I listened to that song when I, when I had COVID, and I was, I was just in this joyful time with Jesus. It was just beautiful. And so I hear that song, I'll be like, I'll hear other songs in his time, in his time, you make all things beautiful. And that reminds me when I first came to know the Lord. Right. There are songs. That the Lord gives us that mark a new kind of a new phase in your heart of encouragement, a a new. Amen. Amen. Doesn't the Lord do that? Well, in Psalm 149, let's go back to Psalm 149. Um, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. The Lord is doing it. But this is now the a climactic and final new song. Amen? So, some to, you know, it, it, something that the Lord is, is, is doing in Psalm 149. Now, the second thing that you should notice in Psalm 149 From Psalm 150, just you see the difference, in, is that in Psalm 150, who's the focus? Psalm 150, who's the focus? Yeah, let, let's put up Psalm 150 quickly there. Psalm 150, praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord. You know, uh, the focus is praise um, the Lord, Yahweh. And the focus is a combination of the Lord and then creation Everything that has breath responds to him, right? It's, 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 it's really God. God is the final, ultimate focus at the end. Psalm 149 is a little bit different. Psalm 149 introduces a different focus. So let's see, let's see if you can, um, let's, let's read through Psalm 149 and, um, and see if you can figure out the focus. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Verse 2. Let Israel be glad in its maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Verse 3. Let them praise his name with dancing. Making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. Verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Verse 5. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Verse 6. Let the high praise of God be in their throat. And the two-edged sword in their hand. Verse 7. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the people. Verse 8. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. Verse 9. To execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Where's the focus? What's the focus of Psalm 149? His people. <laughs> his people. Something is happening in Psalm 149. The spotlight is clearly on God's people. Why? Why is it on God's people? There are 11 explicit references to God's people in Psalm 149. 
basically none on the one hand in Psalm 150. Psalm 150 has not one. Not explicit one. That tells me that before you get to Psalm 150, there is a condition that has to be satisfied with respect to whom? A condition that has to do with whom? With whom? With, say, say louder. His people. Something has, before we can get to Psalm 150, there's a condition that has to be satisfied with his people. All right, so let's move on. Thirdly, um, so we see the focus is, is sep separate. Um, the third thing we notice about Psalm 149 is that the psalmist strongly urges the people of God to exalt in him, in God. L look at verses 2 and 3. Let Israel be glad. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Verse 3. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to them with tambourine. So, so you have here um, um, this, this reference, this invitation this, uh, to, to exalt in the Lord. To exalt simply means to express great happiness. And joy, to rejoice. So exalting means to rejoice. The psalmist is, is inviting the people to strongly um, express exaltation. Be glad in their maker. Rejoice in their king. Praises him with dancing. Making melody to him with a tambourine. Right? That's the first thing that, that, that stands out. Second of all, you notice that very strangely, the author of Psalm 149 does not include himself. He's an outsider. You see that. Let Israel, let's go verse 2. Let Israel be glad. Let, let the children of Zion rejoice. Let them rejoice. Look in verse 3, actually uses them. Let them praise his name. Strange, isn't it? Why doesn't the psalmist include himself? Why, um, why does he say, let us be glad. Let us, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice in our king. Uh, let, us, let us praise his name. What's, what, what's up with that? Why doesn't he include himself in that? Why does it appear that God inspired the psalm to be written from the perspective of an outside observer? Good, que good question. Why doesn't he include himself, you know? God wrote the Bible, amen? Um, two reasons, I believe that. Two reasons why. This approach, Israel, you guys, be glad in your king. Hey, go, rejoicing, rejoicing. That, that outside approach um, really does function to put the spotlight on a particular group of people. 
And, as, as, and as, that's exactly what God wants. God is putting the spotlight on his people in a magnificent way. And, and he's telling, the, he's telling the, the psalmist, don't you cross that line. You declare to them. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, and, and it, it does. It's very effective. Them. Um, it, 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 you know, what, it's this idea that he, he's, he's really highlighting something about God's people. God wants to put the focus on them. And in, in a sense, even the speaker recognizes, in a sense, right? I think we can't take this too far. The speaker recognizes that he does not participate in that. For the purpose of this communication, he's putting the highlights on them, the people of God, Israel, you, you guys. And, those, those are, and, and, and it's, when you look at the prophets, the prophets oftentimes did that. They, 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 can, they can separate in a sense, although they're not separate, but they put the attention on the people of God when that's what the psalmist is doing. So, and I believe that he, this is intentionally centralizing everything around God's people. Secondly, secondly, I do believe, I do believe that the, that the psalmist was writing Psalm 149, he serves as a witness. So he not only, he not only serves to put the, 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 the spotlight on Israel, but he's, a, he's like an, a witness. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any crime but only on the evidence of two or three witnesses. God has done something, that's one, and now he raises the psalmist to bear witness to what God is about to do. I, I think of Mark 10, 49, when Jesus, Mark 10, 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. Talking about blind Bartimaeus. Call him. And then you get somebody that's following Jesus, and they call the blind man and says, take care, he is calling you. The idea that he's, he's a witness to the fact that God said, call him. Jesus said, call Bartimaeus. And then somebody in the crowd goes, hey, he's, he's calling you. Go. Go. So this is going to strengthen the testament concerning the blessing of God's people in Psalm 149. Now, the other, the other thing that's interesting is that Psalm Psalm 149, I, I, was, I was trying to understand how, you know, why does, it, why does he, what's the grammatical reason why it's put that way? He's an outside observer. Well, the form in the Hebrew actually brings that out. It's, it's a, it's, it uses a unique form in the Hebrew where it expresses, um, the, it's a word that expresses a desire or a wish for another person. So it would be let them worship. In, in other words, the, the psalmist is not saying, Israel, be glad. Israel, be glad. No, the psalmist is saying, look, Israel, I want you. I, I'm desiring you. I have a strong desire for you to rejoice in your king. Rejoice in your king. It, 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 it's expressing a great desire. And I think the, the psalmist sees something. So what's the reason that the author is desiring? Let's go back to Psalm, Psalm 2 and 3, Psalm uh, 149, verses 2 and 3, so you can see it. He's saying, Israel, be glad in your maker. He's, 
it's not just, it's, it's, it's a desire. Israel, you should be glad. Might be another way that could be translated. Israel, the, the children of Zion should rejoice in their king. They should. They, sh- they should praise him with a dance. So the psalmist is, is he's, he's not just saying something prophetically, but he has a desire that the people be glad in his maker. He has a desire, a wish that the children of, of, of Zion would rejoice in their king. The question is why? What is, what is informing the desire of the psalmist? Why does he want Israel to be glad in his maker? Why does he want the children of Zion to rejoice? What, is, what does he know that we don't know? He must know something, right? He does. You see, he urges them to exult, to rejoice in God because of something utterly wonderful that he has discovered. What has he discovered? Let Israel be glad for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. I'm not going to say nothing for 20 seconds. (laughs) For the Lord takes pleasure. I was praying this morning, God, please open the eyes of the blind. Open the eyes of the blind. Let us be glad in his maker. Let the children of rejoice in their king. Why? Because the Lord takes pleasure in you. <laughs> like I, I, I said, Lord, I wish we could, we could go on and on because Psalm 149 is going to answer so many questions about that pleasure of God. But we just don't have the time. So first thing you should notice that the word for is, is a conjunction. It's going to basically, con- it's a connecting word. For. It's, it's going to establish a relationship between verse 2 and 3 and then and the proposition that the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Right? So, th- so he establishes that relationship, right? Um, and it could be translated as because. So if some of you, you know, that's kind of old English, for the Lord. I think in more modern English, we would say something like this. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with the tambourine and lyre. Because, I think I have a slide there. Sorry, let's just put because, that might be easier. Because the Lord takes pleasure. In other words, he, he, because serves to provide a reason why the children of Zion should rejoice in their king and praise his name with dancing. Why should the children of Israel rejoice in their king? Because? Because the Lord takes pleasure in his people. 
Why should you be glad in the king? Reasons. It's just very simple. The Lord um, takes pleasure. In other words, knowing that the Lord takes pleasure in his people is sufficient reason, reason to do what? I'll say it again. Knowing that the Lord takes pleasure in his people is always sufficient reason to do what? Exactly. I'll say it again. Knowing that the Lord takes pleasure in you is sufficient reason for you to. To rejoice in your king. That's what the psalmist is saying. For the Lord takes pleasure in it. Rejoice. Be glad. Dance. Why? Now, see, that's not the way we normally think. This is how we think. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord because my sins are forgiven. Ah, that's not what the psalmist says. The psalmist does not say, Israel, be glad in your maker. He has forgiven your sins. Ah, you see, we like that. I, I get that. Oh, amen. My sins are forgiven, and I can bless the Lord. My sins are forgiven. But that's not what the psalmist says. He doesn't say that. <laughs> We, we, this is us. Israel, you know, rejoice in the Lord because he's merciful to you. And we're like, yes, I'm going to pray. I'm going to praise the Lord. He's merciful to me. And we say, I'm going to rejoice because he, um, he rescued me from my sin. But that's not what the psalmist is saying. <laughs> you see, you have no idea how much self-centeredness runs so deep in our hearts. We are self-centered on steroids. You see, when we say things like that, what are we really rejoicing in? When I say, I'm going to rejoice in God because my sins are forgiven, what are we really rejoicing in? Somebody tell me. What was that? What he's done for me. The benefit. I've received a benefit. And I am happy because he's re I've received a benefit. <laughs> That's what we do. That's not what the psalmist is saying. And you might say, well, it's implied. Sure, it's implied. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying rejoice to the Lord because 
He's atoned for your sins. Now, praise God. That, don't get me wrong. There's reason to rejoice because he, he's atoned for my sins. Amen? But what's happening in Psalm 149, we're looking at eschatologically. We're looking at the ultimate reason. What is the ultimate reason that we rejoice? Psalm 149 does not ground our joy in what God has done for us. That's, that's going to require some change of thinking, and I trust it will, right? right? But, but God wants us to, that's why Paul is saying, I'm praying that you might be filled with the knowledge of his pleasure. <laughs> I mean, right? You know, we, we think of knowledge of his will. Yeah, that I love my, my, my neighbor. We put all these things on us. And Paul's like, oh, man, you, you miss it. Psalm 4 does not ground our joy in what God has done for us in a particular time or season of life. And he's done many wonderful things for us. Amen? Can, and we can rejoice in that. And I'm going to rejoice in all of it. <laughs> That's okay, but there's some other, there's something more climactic why we ought to rejoice. The psalmist grounds our joy in God, not in what God has done in a particular time or season of our life, but he's grounded in something eternal, namely God's judgment. Psalm 149 goes deeper and answers the question, well, wait a minute. Yeah, he forgave you of your sin, but why did he forgive you of your sin? Now, how do we normally answer that question? Why did God forgive you of your sin? How do we tend to answer that question? Well, maybe. Yeah, or because I asked him to. Because I repented of my sins. Right? We, we tend to put, well, of course, I, I, I repented of my sins. So he, so, he, so but, 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 but why did he, oh, so we, we ground the cause oftentimes in something that we do. We tend to give answers like, because I prayed, I called upon the Lord, I repented, put my faith. But Psalm 49 is giving us something much more profound. That the ultimate answer, why did grace come to you? Why, why did God save you? Why did God give you mercy? Why did God take away that bondage in your heart? Why did God set you free from that addiction? Why, right? The ultimate answer is what? Because he takes Pleasure in you. <laughs> the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Look at Psalm, Psalm 18 captures it beautifully. Look at Psalm 18. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. Verse 18. 
They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. Verse 19. He brought me out in a broad place. He rescued me because? <laughs> because he delights in you. You see, some of us are so filled with condemnation, so filled with, I'm not sure that God really cares about me. Do you understand that every believer struggles with that at one point? But some people are bound by that. And that's why Paul is saying, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of his pleasure. Right? What, what's his pleasure? What's his delight? Right? You're, are you saying, wait a minute. Emmanuel, I don't get what you're saying. Are you saying that before we came to Christ, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin and living so selfishly, are you saying that he delighted in us? You answer the question. <laughs> yes. He would not have saved you if he not had delighted in you. That doesn't mean that he approves of your behavior. He doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. No, but there's some mystery. Amen? There is a great mystery of his pleasure towards his people. We can't define it, right? But it's clear in the Bible. The reason why you and I are saved is because he delights in us. Even before. How do I know that? How do we know biblically? That God delights in us even before we came to Christ. How do we know that? It's in the Bible. Very clear. Let's go to Ephesians. Some of you, are, some of you, you know, you, you have, you got, you think that your, your delight of God is conditional on your performance. So many of you are bound. You know that what, is, you know what is true, but emotionally, you go around, and I've done this, and I've done that, and therefore God must hate me. Oh, God doesn't like me so much now. God likes me this morning because I prayed two hours, but last night, yesterday I didn't pray, so God loves me less. you got to get rid of that. You, you, we, need, we need a complete reset. We all do. We all do. I'll be honest. We all do that, right? But I want to grow to understand the depth of the love of God. He loves us. He delights in us. Now, you and I look in the mirror and says, what is to be delighted in this little package? <laughs> not, not, not much. Not that much here. But you've got to give God credit that he ain't lying. <laughs> There's a, there is a sense in which God delights in us. And Ephesians is going to tell us a little secret of that delight. This is liberating. Amen? Don't go around. Yeah, you're going to fail. Yes, you're going to fall. But that doesn't change God, what God has already done from eternity. Ephesians chapter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ. And there, that's why this message, we can go on and talk about the basis of that love for us, that basis of delight that comes from Christ. But the reality is that we were in Christ when? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place, even as he chose us in him, right, verse 4, even as he chose, how long ago? Three weeks ago? How long ago? 
Before the foundation of the world, you were chosen in Christ. Now, now if you're in Christ, and, and Christ is the delight of the Father, you enter into that delight in every sense. Not when you repented. Not when you turned to Christ. Before that, there's already within God a delight for his children before you turn to him. Is that awesome? Is that awesome? Wow! <laughs> wow! Are you kidding me? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Stop thinking that you are a byproduct of time. You are a byproduct of eternity. There's mystery here, yes, but we embrace the mystery, rejoicing. <laughs> we're, like, we're rejoicing. <laughs> this is awesome. This is awesome. Right? Why are we rushing? I'm not really sure. It just sounds great. <laughs> right? Yet there's great mystery. But the Bible gives us. Man, if we were to live like that, people are. We, we live like a people of a byproduct of my choices. Are you kidding me? Choices are important. Don't get me wrong. But there's something behind my choice. There's something in eternity. There's a delight of God that I can't comprehend. But I'm going to accept it and believe it because that's what the Bible teaches. He loves us. His love is eternal love. I mean, Jeremiah says it very clearly. I have loved you with an everlasting love. <laughs> like, like, what? It, it doesn't say, I, I have loved you with a 64 uh, year old love. <laughs> like, like, it doesn't say that. It's an everlasting love. Mystery. Mystery. But glorious. Amen. Chose you before the foundation that we should be holy and blameless before him. How did he adopt us? Predestined us. How did he predestined us? In what? In? In what? In, what was the two words before he predestined us? Before that. In love. In love he predestined us. According for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus. According to what? The purpose of his what? Because... <laughs> According to the, the, the glory of his pleasure, he's doing all of this. All of it is so just filled with divine pleasure. Amen? Don't let the devil rob this truth from you. Be diligent. Be disciplined. But no, my life is in his hands. I'm not. Hold me, no matter what may come. Amen. Hope you can begin to let, let's 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 read let's read Colossians one nine Colossians one nine. I'm wrapping up. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. You see what Paul you see what Paul's doing. Paul got gripped by this. He's oh, this is absolutely yeah, beautiful. I'm gonna pray. 
that they may be filled with knowledge of his pleasure for them. God's pleasure and delight for you. And my heart breaks because I think right now there are layers of unbelief, layers of self-esteem worth that just hinders the reality, that hinders us from embracing the truth because ah, I'm not so sure if I believe that. Yeah. I'm just praying that God would open your eyes. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, of his pleasure in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. God takes particular delight in you. There is a delight, an undeniable delight that God takes because we are in Christ. And that delight is real and it's personal. He knows you by name. You're not just a shadow. You are a person. And he absolutely delights. He takes pleasure. Now, I wish I could go to Psalm 49 just to show you some of the nuance of that pleasure of God for you. And what exactly makes his heart burst with laughter. And, and this is his delight. And that's what's going to usher in Psalm 150. Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now. Listen to that. If you were reconciled before, right? <laughs> right? You were not reconciled by your repentance. You were not reconciled. By, no, you were reconciled by the death of his son. Something outside of you. Motivated by the pleasure of God. How much more now shall we be saved? Amen? So can, any of us, can anybody separate us from that love? Let's stand up and let's read Romans 8.31. Let's read Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now I want to take a moment to just, God is for us. Don't limit that, well, God is for me since, since the March of 1986 when I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God is for me. No! God has been for us since eternity's time. And there's absolutely nothing that can ever change that disposition of God towards his people. Nothing. I challenge, well, Paul's going to address that, but I just want you to know, God is forth, not just because I'm serving the Lord, I came to church this morning. <laughs> God is for us. He doesn't put any conditions. God is for us while, right? He is for us in every sense of the word, at every point in time, since the beginning, where he, in, in, in creation, in, in, in eternity's past, until forever. That disposition of God will never change. He is for us. Who can be against us? That's the point. The point is, nobody can be against you. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? But do you see the reason the Lord takes pleasure in his people and he gives us all things? Do, do you see the connection at least? It's driven by his pleasure to give you all things. <laughs> and Psalm 49 really gets into it, you know. This is the heritage, the honor of the saints, right? But he's getting, his pleasure, this is, his pleasure is driving him to give you all things. And then somebody says, I don't have this, I don't have that. Come on, stop it. I'm, I'm starting to sound like Ron now. Stop it. <laughs> Come on. Lay hold of the truth of God. Don't let the devil take the, the, the truth of who you are in Jesus Christ. Don't let them take that away and reduce you to a little mouse coming to church, you know, a little mouse. <laughs> You're not a mouse. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Do you see the, the logic now? I mean, how, who's going to bring a charge to any, God's elect? It is God who justifies. Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And you can change that word with pleasure. You can change, right? God's love is his pleasure. Who shall separate us, right? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? Or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Next. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Next. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's just Paul saying the same thing. I'm praying that you may be filled with the knowledge of his pleasure. Don't let Satan rob you of that. Amen? Can we sing a song? I want to sing a song before we head out. <laughs>